May we now invite IPS Director, Mr. Janadas Devan, to introduce the session, and Dr. Vivian Balakrishnan, Minister for Foreign Affairs. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Our next speaker for the traditional concluding segment, a speech and dialogue, is Dr. Vivian Balakrishnan. Unlike previous guest of honours uh, for this segment, who only come in about 15 minutes before the segment is due to go on, um, Minister Vivian has been here almost the entire day from early this morning. So he has set an impossibly high standard. <laughs> so I'm afraid you have set an impossibly high standard for your colleagues. I can give you the usual litany, beginning with the fact that Minister Vivian was a president scholar, he was a champion school debater, some of you may remember that, uh, and an ophthalmologist by training. He has served in a number of ministries since entering politics in 2001, I think, um, in MND, in uh, the old Mika, uh, MTI, the old MCYS, Muir, and now, of course, since 2015 in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. All this you know, as you do, that he is also the minister in charge of the Smart Nation Initiative. But let me tell you one thing that not many of you here know or may know. Minister Vivian's hobby is taking apart and putting together watches. I'm not kidding. He likes taking them apart, these intricate timepieces, and then putting them back together. I have no idea why this is a thrilling experience. Uh, I know this for I have had occasion to buy him or get him old timepieces from overseas. But when you think about it, it is difficult to imagine a more apt hobby for a Minister of Foreign Affairs in Singapore. For our place in the world does depend on every little thing that we do fitting in with everything else. Just as a watch wouldn't work if the whole caboodle doesn't work together. So ladies and gentlemen, May I invite our guest of honor, Dr. Vivian Balakrishnan, the watchmaker as foreign minister. Well, thank you, Janadas, for that uh, introduction, a uh, slightly unconventional introduction. Let me first say I've sat through today. Um, you've had a history lesson from Professor Wang politics from George Yeo, economics, and then you had a session from Marty and from Bilahari on regional diplomacy. I'm going to try, and I say try because you're all very long-suffering and have been here for many hours, but I'm going to try to synthesize all these elements into a coherent concept. And if you ignore the rest of my speech, I only ask you to remember three phrases. The first phrase is a fractured world order. The second, fractious domestic politics. And third, digital disruption. And what I'm going to attempt to show today is a chain of causality between these three elements. Let me start by stating the obvious. We live 
in a very uncertain, volatile, and difficult world. You've heard in the course of the day the strategic tensions, and I say strategic tensions, between China and the US, and I would include Russia. You've also heard, or you'd be aware, that politics as we know it is over. In fact, mainstream politicians all over the world are in trouble, and we are witnessing the simultaneous rise of both right-wing and left-wing populism all over the world, not just in the West. You're also aware, deeply aware, that there is deep anxiety the world over, and especially amongst the middle class, over wage stagnation and over the future of jobs. We are also painfully aware that there is anger over increasing inequality. And if that isn't enough, I would also hasten to add that the level of carbon dioxide in our air, more than 400 parts per million. The last time the world had carbon dioxide at this level was at least 400,000 years ago. And since I'm a doctor, I can tell you we are overdue for the next pandemic. So, having put you all in a good mood, my thesis today is that we are witnessing a fractured world order due to fractious domestic politics that is caused by a digital disruption. Okay? A chain of causality. So let me restate this chain. I believe that technology is a key driving force of human progress. And the early masters of technology accumulate and wield outsized power, financial, political, and ultimately military. Hence, every time the world experiences a major technological breakthrough, there will always be, by definition, revolutionary shifts in the economic means of power. And when you get changes in the means of economic production, that in turn will disrupt societies, change politics. And in turn, that will alter the global balance of power. We've seen all this before. And it's just that it is about to be replayed, but at a faster pace and by different actors. Let me start with the Industrial Revolution to give you some empirical evidence. We speak English today because the Industrial Revolution started in England. Savery and Newcomen invented the steam engine, and this was later improved by James Watt. And the steam engine replaced human and animal labor with energy from fossil fuels. First time in human history. What this meant was the age of mechanization. It uprooted the economy. Previously, handcrafted products were now mass-produced. 
And importantly, owning capital became far more lucrative than just owning land. And it transformed agrarian societies. And bear in mind that human beings have had agricultural societies for 8,000 years. In turn, now that you've got machines and you've got factories, you now need labor. And labor migrated to urban centers. You had urbanization and cities. Importantly, in the political field, power structures shifted from landowners in feudal societies to the owners of capital in industrial capitalist societies. And if you think about the way labor was exploited in the early phase of the Industrial Revolution and the vicissitudes of work and the impact of losing a job in those days, that in turn generated a social and political backlash. And that's why, in fact, we have today's trade unions and even the welfare state in Europe. These were, in a sense, a political response to the last industrial revolution. And this is how the modern political order with right wings and left wings emerged. Massive socio-economic disruption driven by the advent of mechanized production. What did this mean for foreign policy in an industrial age? Industrial Britain needed raw materials, a lot of which were from Southeast Asia, and it needed new markets for its new manufactured products. It sent expeditions. Its navy was strengthened. Outposts were established, including exactly 200 years ago to today, Raffles landed in Singapore to establish an outpost. The outcome of this trade and foreign policy was an empire on which the sun never set and preeminence for Great Britain for more than a century. What happened after that? The next breakthrough was the concept of a moving assembly line. And the archetypical example of that happened in the US, Henry Ford's Model T car. Mass production was made possible through task specialization. And what used to take 12 hours, a car could now be constructed in Ford's factory in two and a half hours. What this meant was that prices of cars fell, a virtuous cycle was set up between mass production and mass consumption because those same workers that Henry Ford employed who earned higher wages could now become consumers in their own right. And so we witnessed capital accumulating, wealth accumulating even more than before. And those of you who are interested in history will know that there was a period called the Gilded Age. And there were robber barons who found ways to further enrich themselves. And in fact, it was a period of increasing inequality. Across the globe, reactionary responses to this type of very asymmetric capital accumulation led 
to growing extremism. Fascists on the right, communists on the left. Economic rivalry and political miscalculation sowed the seeds for the two world wars of the last century. The corollary in foreign policy was that the US, at the end of the last world war, having outdone all others in technological superiority, was actually the undisputed main winner of the Second World War and became a global superpower. Yes, I know there was a distraction for more than 50 years with the Cold War, but in a sense, there was no question that it was the US that had technological supremacy. And therefore, we should not have been surprised with the fall of the Berlin Wall. The share of the US GDP in the 50s and 60s, the share of global GDP of the US was probably around 40%. Today, although the US GDP has continued to grow, on a relative scale, it is now about 24%. And you realize that when a single superpower has 40% of global GDP, every dollar created in the world, 40 cents accumulates to its account. In that scenario, it was worth its while for the US to set the rules of global engagement to be the primary architect and underwriter of the world order as we know it that has existed since the end of the Second World War. This was a system defined by free markets, free trade, and global economic integration. Along the way, the United Nations was formed, the Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, the Marshall Plan for Europe, the reconstruction of Japan, domestically, the GI Bill, which provided mass education to returning veterans. Mass education that gave them the skills to harvest the fruits of the Industrial Revolution. And there was therefore a golden age for capitalism for about 30 to 35 years after the end of that war. An age of a rising middle class, decreasing inequality, and the average job in America could get, get people a house, a home, and the security to provide for their families. The foundations of the rules-based multilateral system, in fact, gave newly independent countries like Singapore a small seat at the table, but significant opportunities. Think about the process of globalization that occurred after the war. Again, it was driven by technological revolution. Names like William Shockley, John Bardeen, and Walter Bertin, these were the inventors of the transistor in 1947. But actually, it is Dick Morley's programmable logic controller which revolutionized industrial control because it made it easier to reprogram machinery in factories, to change products in accordance to consumer needs. And now that production was easily adjusted, by leveraging on improvements in shipping, logistics, 
and in particular the icon there is the container and the container ship. And at the same time, the explosion in Infocom's technology transformed the world once again. At its zenith, it allowed for just-in-time production. It allowed global supply chains to be constructed. And multinational corporations became a formidable force and very often having revenues exceeding that of small countries. Now, think about Singapore's position in the mid-60s when we were unexpectedly thrust into independence. Fortunately, our early leaders chose to do what was unfashionable in the early post-colonial era by inviting these same MNCs that were building global supply chains to bring their technology and access to markets to us. This was unconventional back in the 60s. If you think about other countries, newly independent, they were focused on import substitution. So, paradoxically, because Singapore lost its hinterland and because we had to invite the MNCs, we became a global city way before the word globalization became fashionable. We moved up the value chain subsequently, advanced manufacturing, and ultimately global services. Our GDP grew from US $500 per capita in 1965 to more than 50,000 US dollars 53 years later. As Dr. Go King Sui said, and this was a point which I think Kai Fong made earlier this morning, we needed the humility to learn, the courage to be unconventional, and the ability to unify and carry our people as we were embarked on this journey. Today, the success of Singapore is a living testament to the fruits of an export-oriented free market capitalist system. And we have fully exploited our improved air, sea, and digital links in an increasingly connected world. But the point is this, we were in the right time, right place, right technology, right strategy. And it is always important, therefore, to understand that we cannot engage in navel-gazing, but we need to understand what is happening around us and then adjust our posture. Now, whilst the net impact of globalization has clearly been positive for Singapore. In a sense, actually, we had no choice. But nevertheless, we must be careful not to overstate the benefits of globalization. The political reality is that in globalization, automation, there will always be both winners and losers. For Singapore, as a relatively young country, we started from a low base. We made a quantum leap up due to the visionary political leadership that we had. So we are clear winners in this age of globalization. But in the Western world, especially in the last 30 years, it is clear that a significant number of people, especially blue-collar workers, have been left behind. Blue-collar workers in Europe and in the West have seen their wages stagnate, jobs move overseas, income gaps widen 
versus the elite, and they are feeling increasingly aggrieved. In a sense, another upheaval, another backlash, and we should not have been surprised by it. Now, to make things even more complicated, we have not yet digested the full consequences of the last industrial revolution. Well, to now a new digital revolution is upon us. And this time, I'm referring to smart technology. And in particular, smart technology based on machine learning, a phenomenon which actually has only really taken off in the last two or three years. Machine learning, if you're a biologist, you will say, well, they tried to copy the brain. Multiple layers of synapses, simple on their own, but by having connections and the ability to adjust the strength of connections, you create systems that are able to recognize patterns. But this would not have been possible without the exponential rise in computing power, networks, big data, and the new algorithms. And I want to say as a biologist, as a doctor, that pattern recognition is the difference between AI, smart AI, and standard automation. Because if you think about it, the ability to recognize patterns is the basis for vision, for listening, for speaking, for translation, and for cognition. Examples, everyone's heard about Google developing the program called AlphaGo, which beat a human professional Go player called Mr. Lee Sedol without any handicaps in 2016 for the first time. I often find that Western audiences who have not played the game of Go do not appreciate just how complex Go is. There are more combinations of moves in a game of Go than there are atoms in the universe. What that means is that unlike chess or even Sudoku, it cannot be solved with standard rules-based programming. And let me tell you, since PM has programmed a, a Sudoku sol solver in C and I translate it into JavaScript, I can attest that Go is a completely different level of complexity. So the point now is that for the first time in human history, not only has energy, human and animal energy, been replaced by fossil fuels, not only have automation and globalization taken over, but now the advent of robotics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence are already revolutionizing finance, commerce, defense, logistics, health, and transport sectors. Now, just to give you an idea of how much progress has occurred in the last two years, because this is something even I was not aware of. In 2016, the United Nations unloaded about 800,000 documents onto the internet. The critical feature of that unload was that the UN has six official languages. 
So it unloaded documents which were translated word for word by humans in six different languages. In 2016, at the same time that Google was playing Go, it decided to use the same techniques of machine learning to do translation. Any one of you who has used Google Translate before 2016 and today will know that there is a big difference. If you don't believe me, try it now. And the big difference was they shifted over to machine learning, neural nets, and pattern recognition. So the point is this, and when Google did it, they didn't tell anybody. They kept it a secret until a Japanese researcher in November of that year suddenly noticed that Google Translate had improved. And then they revealed their secret source. And in fact, they stopped all their development using old techniques and switched over to machine learning. Now, there's another explosion occurring, and that's in 5G technology. And I don't mean just the contest between the US and China. 5G will create unprecedented levels of connectivity. It'll increase bandwidth. It will explode the Internet of Things. And there will be an explosion, a tsunami of data. Now think about this point. Pattern recognition using machine learning depends on data. And when you now have a tsunami of data, and you have the algorithms and the computing power and the networks to deal with it, you are sitting on a real revolutionary technology. And language barriers will erode. And you know, it's like today, George scolding the agency for using a single language on a memorial. Well, today, if you just take a Google Translate, you point at it, it'll pick whatever language you want, it'll translate it for you. There's no excuse for us to be monolingual in today's smart world. But herein lies another problem. It means that you are now competing not only with workers overseas, not only with machines locally, but that telepresence is now multilingual. There are only about a billion people who speak English to a sufficient level to perform useful technical work today. But once you break these barriers of language, you can easily double or triple that number. So the point is we are going to see disrupted societies, fractious politics, and the global order as we know it is going to change. In fact, there will be considerable dislocation because the change is accelerating. And in the example I gave you, I bet most people in this room are not even aware of how much has changed in just the last two years. And if history is a guide, every time you get a change like this, you get an initial gilded age, greater inequality, robber barons the early masters and adopters of technology. And it takes time before the new means of production are democratized and a new middle class can arise. I believe we are now in a new digital gilded age. There are winners 
and their losers. The winners are the supranational tech companies, you know their names, Google, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook, which are growing in political, economic clout. Why? Because they sit on top of mountains of specific and very often personal data. And there will be losers. Those who have not been able to scale up and have lost their jobs due to disruptive changes. Automation will put... Automation in the past took away many blue-collar jobs. But pattern recognition of today and tomorrow will make many white-collar jobs redundant. It is true that new jobs will be created, but my worry is that they will not be created fast enough to replace the old jobs, and this will cause further dislocation and fractious domestic politics. And so we are already seeing the political effects. Increasing polarization, a hollowing out of the center of the middle class and of mainstream politics. So you see that in virtually all societies, one group is moving further to the right, channeling frustration towards immigrants and free trade. They want to build walls. Another group is moving further to the left, demanding increased subsidies, the ultimate example of which is universal basic income, and they want radical redistribution. Can you see it? A collapse of the center, a rise of the right and left. And this breakdown of domestic political consensus will inevitably disrupt the international system. There will be countries that are afraid of change and fearing competition will question the value of the current liberal world order. On the other hand, nations like Singapore believe that we need to master the new technologies, face competition head on, double down on interdependence, integration, openness, and to seek win-win cooperation. This division and divergence will grow more acute as technological adoption accelerates. And so, ladies and gentlemen, this is our current predicament. If you now use the US and China as a case in point, China's achievements in the last 40 years since Kaike Kaifang, reform and opening, have been astounding. It has lifted 800 million people out of poverty since 1980, 1990. GDP per capita in China has risen from 90 US dollars in 1960 to over 8,000 US dollars in 2016. China has climbed up the technological value chain. Today, you all hear of companies like Tencent, Alibaba, and Huawei. And this is not just catch-up industrialization. This is pursuing leading, bleeding, cutting-edge technology. In this period, the earlier period, the US and China had a mutually beneficial and interdependent relationship, very different from the relationship between the US and Russia during the Cold War. Instead, you had US companies flocking to China and actually, China became part of their global supply chain. The US also welcomed Chinese investments 
and Chinese talent into the universities and into their companies. Trade in goods and services reached over US 700 billion per annum. But we all know today the nature of relations is now shifting from engagement to strategic competition. And the question is, why? China used the last four decades to catch up and today is in a position to seriously contest for technological supremacy. And the question then is who will master smart technology, AI, robotics, and big data first? Who will be better able to acquire and apply the data, the techniques, and the tools better, faster, and more effectively? Countries used to compete on the basis of land and capital. But today, the fight is going to be over data. Data will be the crucial factor of production in this brave new age. And the one who acquires and applies the most data will have an enormous advantage, an enormous head start. And in this technological contest, the stakes are actually even higher than they were in the past. Why? Precisely because in the digital arena, global markets, geography, has contracted. Let me just give you an example. When the Silk Road first started, the price of silk in Europe was 10,000 times the price of silk in Beijing. Why? Because transportation, logistics, was so difficult. Today, in a world with fiber, Amazon, e-commerce, and the rest of it. That kind of differentials have collapsed. What it means now, if you have the best silk or the best product, you have access to a global market. And the consequences of winning, especially as we move towards a winner-take-all world, there's an enormous difference between being number one and number two. And that's why you are seeing this contest or strategic rivalry between the US and China. It is not just a trade war. It's not just arguments about supplier of 5G equipment, although 5G is a key arena for contests. Now, I'm not trying to downplay the other areas of strategic contests, such as trade, but I want to recognize that something more fundamental is at work here. And my point is that even if the US and China settle their current trade dispute, and Singapore obviously earnestly hopes that they will, things will not be hunky-dory after that. Because of the pervasiveness of the technology, we expect this strategic contest to be waged in other arenas defense, energy, cybersecurity, and even outer space. And alongside this contest for technological mastery runs a parallel contest for governance. The question is whose preferred paradigm will regulate the emerging global commons in cyberspace and outer space? Should these be democratized, or will they be subject to the free market 
or entirely state-controlled? They're not easy questions to answer. We took many years to arrive, to arrive at a global consensus on regulating the high seas and international trade. That's why we've got the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS, and we have the World Trade Organization. Discussions on cyberspace and outer space regulations are still at very nascent levels. So the question is, how do we in Singapore respond to such a world? In this age, smart technologies and big data hold the keys to the future. And the ones with the keys will retain economic and geopolitical relevance and shape global rules. But the runners-up will not just be incrementally disadvantaged, they will be exponentially left behind. It is this technological contest and its impact on the economy that underpins the conduct of foreign policy. The cut and trust of politics may dominate our attention from day to day. You'll make headlines. But in reality, these are just froth atop the tectonic shifts in the geostrategic balance of power. So what is a small country like Singapore to do in this brave new world that we find ourselves in? And I believe that Singapore's foreign policy principles remain as salient today as they were when they were set by Mr. Lee and Mr. Rajaratnam in 1965. In a word, the one word is relevance. In 2009, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew delivered the S. Rajaratnam lecture, and he said, and I want to quote him, we must make ourselves relevant so that other countries have an interest in our continued survival and prosperity as a sovereign and independent nation. Singapore cannot take its relevance for granted. Small countries perform no vital or irreplaceable functions in the international system. Singapore has to continually reconstruct itself and keep its relevance to the world and to create political and economic space. I think these words are still absolutely true. So what are we to do? First, Singapore must always remain open. Open for business, open especially for talent. We must maintain a society that is fair we must maintain our reputation for integrity and to be trusted by all. We are a small country with no natural resources. We cannot afford to build walls to shelter our population because hiding from inevitable change is not a survival strategy. So our doors, by definition, must remain open to everyone who wants to engage us and in fact, we need to continue to actively create the conditions that will attract others to keep coming, just as Kai Fong said this morning. We will have to continue to strengthen our air, our sea, and our digital connectivity, deepening our economic and investment links with partners across the globe. And one of my favorite pictures, which I spend more time looking at, is the map of submarine cables. These are the new digital maritime. Silk Roads. It carries data, the currency of the future, and we must entrench Singapore's hub status in these new communication routes. And just as we protected and treated 
the investments of MNCs and even the oil that was stored in tanks in Singapore carefully. For data, we must remain helpful, neutral, and reliable. Our legal framework will continue to respond to these emerging technologies. We will have to put safeguards in place. We'll have to protect intellectual property. Data and privacy needs to be protected. And as I said just now, our reputation for integrity, reliability, and straight talking is critical. We do not wish to be compelled to choose sides. I know this is a standard question which I will always be asked in a forum like this. And I'll just repeat it. We do not wish to be compelled to choose sides in this strategic and technological contest because we believe that synergies will be more powerful when we cooperate to create common rather than competing closed platforms. Okay? Common open platforms as opposed to close competing platforms. And this core belief informs our approach to global governance. Which brings me to my second point, that Singapore will always work to fortify the multilateral system and contribute actively to shaping new norms to govern the global commons. Our role on this has been established. Ambassador Tomiko played a leading role in finalizing UNCLOS, the Constitution for the Seas, and our climate change negotiators. I personally spent four and a half years trying in our own way to help bring the Paris Agreement into being. I've spoken about the current debate over cyberspace and outer space regulations. Singapore's position on this is unequivocal. All states must be involved in shaping the new rules and the concerns of small states must be taken on board. But arriving at a consensus will not be easy given that the stakes are high, but precisely because of this, norm generation is necessary. And Singapore can always be counted on to send our best people to these international expert groups and negotiations so that we make a positive, constructive, and outsized contribution. Third, we need to diversify our partnerships. We know that technological disruption will erode barriers, borders, it will revolutionize business models, it'll shift production bases, and new technology hubs will emerge. No advantage is engraved in stone. And we have to be prepared to go beyond conventional markets. We have to be prepared to sometimes break safe models and to capitalize on new opportunities. And some of these new opportunities are right at our doorstep. ASEAN, a dynamic region, a rising middle class, boundless potential for the next few decades at least. More than half the population in ASEAN is under the age of 30 and many are digital natives who have even skipped landlines completely. A st study on the e-economy by Google and Tamasa in 2018 reported that in Southeast Asia, the growth of our internet economy reached US $72 billion in 2018. But more important, is that that represents a doubling of the figure just three years before that, in 2015. So we believe, and it's not just a political posture, but we believe 
it is essential to build thicker and deeper linkages across ASEAN cities and to create new partnerships as we get onto this new technology ladders. Other countries and companies are hungry to engage us, and we should reciprocate enthusiastically. That's why we launched the ASEAN Smart Cities Network last year when we were chairman of ASEAN, a first step in this direction. And I'm glad it was well received by all our neighbours. 26 pilot cities have been established. They have promulgated action plans from 2018 to 2025. And more importantly, several of these projects have attracted partnerships between the private sector and the state sector. In future, the development of technology will be driven not top-down by governments or state institutions, but a trilateral cooperation between the state, the private sector, and the consumers. So I'm very glad that ASEAN took a step towards harnessing this productive dynamic. So let me conclude by saying that we live in extraordinary times. You know, not every generation gets to live through a revolution, but we are. Entire multi-billion dollar industries exist because technologies are changing in front of our eyes. And if you think about the explosion in apps and services that are being generated, the pace is only going to accelerate. But recognize that disruption will bring both challenges and opportunities. We also recognize that Singapore, by dint of our size, we will never be a global superpower. But we can and we must master the technology if we are to remain successful and to preserve our independence to make decisions based on our own sovereign interests in this coming age. And by playing our cards right, we can remain in the sweet spot, just as we have for the last five decades. We've done it before. We caught the wave of offshoring when we industrialized in the mid-60s and 70s. In the 70s, we bet on the right horse by doubling down on logistics and container ports and airports. We then moved on to electronics, precision engineering. Now we need to do the same with big data and smart technology. And to do so, Singapore must continue to remain open we must engage everyone who wants to be a partner or friend with us. We must strengthen our convening power, not only for meetings like the last year's USDPRK summit, but it, we must be the best place for any MNC to assemble a multinational team in the world. With, regardless of where people come from, this is a convenient, a safe, a beautiful, a conducive place for them and their families to work together and form multinational teams. We must continue to engage all the major powers, but to do so in a disciplined and principled way and preserve our neutrality. I sometimes remind everyone that is why, from time to time, Singapore must have the ability to say no. To say no to our neighbours and to say no even to the superpowers, but not as a capricious exercise, but as an exercise in a principled and disciplined way to, re to prove 
our neutrality and why we are worthy of people's trust. Our history has shown that we can work with all parties and partners, we can create common space, and we can pursue mutually beneficial outcomes. We will concurrently work to uphold international law and the rules-based international order even into the newer arenas of cyberspace and outer space. And we are committed to ensuring that the multilateral framework which has underpinned our peace and prosperity continues to be preserved and remains relevant. To bring all of this home, we need Singaporeans to be fully prepared to collectively face this new age of disruption. Since independence, Singapore has relied on our people's ingenuity, their tenacity, their willingness to sacrifice and save and to do whatever it takes to survive and thrive. This time, we need to double down on these attributes of Singaporeans. And if we do not ride this next wave, we will sink under this tsunami. And that's why economic restructuring is a key priority for the Singapore government. That's why you keep hearing Mr. Heng Sui Kiet stressing the need to restructure ourselves. And we have to keep improving our education system, retraining and upskilling skills future. It's not just a word, but has to be a critical inherent part of our strategy for survival so that Singaporeans will master these new technologies. Equally, we also need to make significant adjustments to our social security system, but to do so in a fiscally sustainable way so that Singaporeans will have the confidence to navigate these disruptive times. And the government will do our part to equip and prepare Singaporeans even as we explore new markets, build new partnerships, facilitate new business models, and harvest new technologies. Companies and individuals now need to be entrepreneurial, adventurous. We must be able to seize new opportunities and we must remain resilient and united. If we succeed, we will navigate safely through this current gilded age and a new golden age awaits us. Thank you all very much for your attention. Thank you, Minister, for a tour de force. I told you he was a watchmaker. <laughs> so I don't know how many of you noticed our logo for this year's conference, Singapore Little Red Dot World. So there is only a little red dot that separates Singapore and the world. Yes. And there can't be that many foreign ministers elsewhere in the world who would spend the bulk of their talk on foreign policy talking about pandemics, technology, disruption, data, smart nation, and so on, quite aside from the traditional areas of concern of a foreign minister. So let me begin by asking a very simple, pragmatic question. How do you, in the course of a day, keep in mind the challenges that you spoke of, the long-term challenges you spoke of, which can't be the daily concern of even Singapore's foreign ministry. I doubt whether your permanent secretary will come up to you every other day speaking about pandemics or technological disruptions or even persistent problems like social inequality. And yet, these are the problems that we have to think about and bear in mind over the long term. So how do you, events, 
for foreign ministries all over the world, including ours, are in the saddle. So how do you deal with what you refer to as the cut and thrust um, of daily policy making um, while keeping in mind and dealing, not only in mind of foreign ministry, but also in the public mind, these much more real long-term challenges? Well, I, I guess I bring my medical or surgical <laughs> approach to it. When you're treating a patient, it's very important to clearly differentiate between symptoms, signs. Can everyone hear? And a diagnosis. So in the course of events, and certainly in the case of MFA, you know, things happen. And sometimes they happen unexpectedly. Sometimes things cluster together. And sometimes, in fact, so far I haven't had any times of boredom yet. But I try to maintain the discipline that when something happens, the first thing I ask myself is, okay, is this going to kill me? Is this an emergency? Is the patient going to die? The patient going to die, you better drop everything, focus 100% getting through this crisis. On the other hand, if you only focus on emergencies and crisis, you will miss far more important strategic conditions which actually are going to kill the patient or make an enormous difference to the quality of life in the future. So I maintain this discipline of saying, okay, what's an emergency? What about all the other things? Can I find a pattern to it? And if I can find a pattern and I can make a diagnosis, next thing is, what are the options? And then in politics, it's never about just an intellectual exercise. You have to convince your own teammates, convince your own people, and ultimately convince those you're negotiating with across the table. But I found that by taking a larger, a more a strategic view of things, it sometimes helps people to understand why short-term gain or short-term compromises may be necessary in order to achieve longer-term health, longer-term better outcomes for Singapore. So if you think of last year, it was a very busy year. We were chairman of ASEAN, we had to launch the ASEAN Smart Cities Network, we had to deal with problems in Myanmar, we had the summit DPRK, and then just when I thought that December had come and I was going to rest, Malaysia suddenly acted up and kept me sufficiently entertained. So that's just life for a foreign minister. But I will say this, we are very blessed in Singapore to have some of the best people, minds and thinkers in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I'm not talking about the political level. If you go to the United Nations, you throw a stone at any Singaporean diplomat. Chances are you will hit someone who is smart, urbane, sophisticated, constructive, trusted, honest. That reputation makes life so much easier for me. We have about 35 minutes for questions. So may I invite you to come up to the mic? There are mics placed all over the hall. Please, um, Gillian. Gillian, you want to start off? 
Thank you, sir. Good afternoon, Minister. Let me appeal to this idea that you're a watchmaker and watch fixer so that everything fits into everything else and that the system works effectively and is sustainable. My question is this. In the recent parliamentary discussion on the Singhealth cyber attack, uh, the French branch was wary about disclosing which is the state actor that had engaged in this protracted strategy to um, get in place mechanisms to hack our well, public institution. Um, when we discussed the legislation on deliberate online falsehoods, uh, there were sessions that were taken on offline, off the record, to discuss who were the adversaries that we may need that legislation for. So the question is this, sir, where do you see citizens fitting into the broad picture of foreign and defence strategy in Singapore, maintaining the strength of our sovereignty going forward? Do you feel that there should be occasions where you take them closer into the fold, take them into your confidence and share with them who are the adversaries who are taking us on? Is that necessary? What is your rationale in saying, we better not say who they are? Lah. Uh, you know, maybe it's a trade-off. You do not want to alarm the populace or you might think that might polarise public opinion versus you probably don't want to dignify the adversary and say, we concede, you, we acknowledge that you, know, you, you had us. I ask this question because the strategy seemed to be targeted at playing the ground. And if the ground is not aware, then are we fighting this battle with our hands tied behind our back? Thank you, Minister. Thank you. You're basically asking the question on, of attribution, whether we should name names. Let me take a step back. Are we the target of cyber attacks? Clearly, the answer is yes. Are people attacking us for commercial advantage and state advantage? The answer is yes. Are there multiple parties out there attacking us? The answer is yes. Is it a simple matter of naming names and somehow hoping that name and shame will act as a deterrent? And the answer is, that's an arguable point. But you know as well as I do, the potential benefits to an attacker far outweigh the risk even of being named, which means this will continue. So the more relevant question is, given that this is the state of the world and these are the way the incentives are set up, what should we do about it? Now, of course, the first question is whether we give up and go back to paper and pen. That's, and that is a valid question. We have decided that's not the way we will progress in Singapore. Next question, is that, okay, if you've decided that you will still have electronic records, 
how will you protect it? And the, even the answer to that question goes beyond technical levels. Because it is not just a matter of encryption or firewalls or internet separation. Essential though all those things are. But I'll tell you, the weakest link is still a human being. And you cannot take humans out of human systems. So what do you do next? Then you say, well, you add on systems of surveillance, audits, checks and balances. And we do all those things. And then there's another element that the technology is also changing even under your feet. And what works today may not work tomorrow. So again, it comes to the fact that we need to stay abreast of the technology. We need to be masters of this technology rather than to be swamped by it and to give up by it. Now, it is only after you've addressed all those issues before you come to the question of attribution. And here as foreign minister, I must put up my hand and say, I also have a say as to whether you're going to attribute an attack to a specific state because it does have foreign policy implications. But that's not the decisive determinant. In the particular case that you've mentioned, we know it is a highly sophisticated attack done by a, obviously a party with deep resources and technical skills. We have decided that simply naming names is not going to make our system more secure or help be helpful to us. So it is, as Minister Israel has said, it may be of interest to the public, but it is not in our public interest at this point in time to name names. So that's where we're at. Will there be other cases in the future? I'm sure there will be. But this is a never-ending challenge that we will have to continue to master. Your, your other question was, what do the, the general public do about this? I think number one, be aware. Number two, take basic precautions. And you'll be surprised how many of us do not take basic precautions. Number three, as our legislation evolves, by all means, participate in the formulation of that legislation, convey your views, your suggestions, and be part of the solution and not just a passive victim of the problem. So this is, watch this space, more, far more work will need to be done in the future. And then after we settle ourselves domestically, we then have to try to settle it internationally. And that's going to be even harder because as I said, you know, the, we use, in the early days on the internet, the private sector just said, trust us, don't worry, we are not under the control of the government, trust us. I think today everyone knows you can't just depend on the private sector saying, trust us, because after all, the private sector also has its own set of incentives. On the other hand, if you just had the government imposing everything, you get the usual questions are, are governments doing it for its own self-serving reasons? 
And then, if you think about people, what is it people want most of all? Number one, I think they want safety. They want to make sure that none of my vital records, and in this case, it's usually health and finance, are not compromised at my expense. I think number two, people want some idea of some protection of their privacy. And privacy is something which is going to be a harder and harder thing to safeguard in the future. But these are conversations, domestic and international, that will have to continue. Next. Next question. Someone By the way, the spying is the second oldest profession in the world, closely conjoined with the first. <laughs> um, and forget That's about paper true. and pencil, That's they true. existed in the days of quills and papyrus, you know. Yes. So, what can you do about it? Well, your password should not be password. Lah. <laughs> so, I mean, I, mean, I bet I, you. In a lot room. of people have that. <laughs> Wait, is somebody there? Hello. Okay, I can't see you, but start okay. speaking. Yeah. Okay, good afternoon, doc Dr. Balakrishnan and Mr. Janadas. My name is Shia Singh, and I'm from Victoria Junior College. Oh, so as we've seen in the arrest of Meng Wanzhou, the USA is increasingly pressurizing its allies to freeze out Chinese companies from participating in nations' implementation of 5G networks. So when inaction and attempts to be neutral may be interpreted as a preference for one country over the other. How, um, where does Singapore stand regarding this issue? And how do we remain neutral in this instance? Okay, another very good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you spoke about cyber, so. Yes, no, but th this is a good question because in fact it illustrates yeah. the contest for supremacy that's going on yeah. in the technological space and also the conduct of foreign policy and the rule of law internationally. And I would, my starting point is what I said just now during my speech, that we need the ability to say no from time to time in a principled and disciplined way. When we say a principled and disciplined way, our usual recourse in the case of Singapore is the rule of law, and in particular, when it involves states, international law. And we reserve the right to say no to our neighbors and no to the superpowers if a request is unreasonable or contravenes international law. I'm not going to give you a specific answer to a specific case, but I want you to understand our considerations as and when requests come in and believe me requests come in all the time and each time we have to look at it look at it from all perspectives and then take a decision and that's why I remind people who sometimes say look you know Singapore you're a little red dot you're a small state why don't you be more obliging my answer is that we can't be simply more obliging just because someone is a friend or someone is a big in a position to exercise leverage against us. Because once you compromise and oblige in an unprincipled manner, believe me, the next request will come in fast and furious. And people will expect you to compromise on the basis of how hard they push you. 
So that's why I ask all of you as Singaporeans for your understanding when you, sometimes we say no. And we say no to big powers as well. It is actually the safer, indeed, the only cause of action which a small little red dot like us can pursue. And that's why international law is so important. And that's why every time we sign a treaty, whether it's extradition or mutual legal assistance, we read it two, three, four, five times, dot the I's, cross the T's. And we take our obligations very, very seriously. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. My name is Rohana. I'm from NTU. Um, yes. I'm just, uh, thank you, sir, for your very um, wide-ranging talk. Um, oftentimes today we heard that ASEAN is very crucial to uh, Singapore's future. Uh, my question is, I know Brexit is looming and uh, this may not be desirable, but can we, will we, do we want to be like the EU in terms of, not in its entirety, but in terms of processes, structure, governance, systems. I ask this because some 15 years ago I did a thesis on comparing EU and ASEAN. I was a bit more hopeful about a united and more co coherent ASEAN, but today I'm not so sure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I just got back from Brussels a few days ago. Uh, ironically, it was for the ASEAN-EU foreign ministers meeting. And I'll share what I shared, what I said to them. And my view is that the EU and ASEAN, in fact, are two of the most successful regional organizations in the world. Now, before you think I'm just trying to flatter them and flatter us, let me explain why. In the case of the EU, its real value has been to make war unthinkable in Western Europe. And bear in mind that Western Europe was the focus for two world wars in the last century. So whatever the travails the EU undergoes, whether questions on Eurozone or Brexit or the bureaucracy of Brussels, I remind everyone that its primary benefit is peace and, secondly, prosperity in Western Europe. Now, when it shifts to ASEAN, I also told my EU colleagues, there is a huge difference between the EU and ASEAN. There may be 28, maybe 27 of them on the other side. But if you look in terms of civilization, culture, approach to law, approach to trade, in fact, there's a lot that they have in common. And mind you, they have achieved this commonality after centuries of wars and conflicts and various arrangements that have evolved over centuries. When you cast your eyes on ASEAN, and as Bilahari said just now, first of all, it's amazing that in 1967, the five countries to come together, I don't agree with him, it's just because they were not democracies. I think the real answer is that they had strong leaders who realized it was better to hang together than to hang separately. 
1967, just to give you a context, remember we had just split from Malaysia. The Philippines still had territorial conflicts with Malaysia. Indonesia, the confrontasi, the bomb had gone off in Singapore in 1964. We still had two Indonesian Marines on death row. And despite all these tensions, we got together. But one important difference with the EU is that we recognize that we are very, very different. Each of us. You've got systems from absolute monarchies to military arrangements to all varieties of democracies. You've got per capita incomes that range from what, 1,000 US to 50,000 US. Because of our diversity, the founders of ASEAN created this principle that everything would have to be decided by consensus. And I've been asked before in the past, should ASEAN abandon consensus? Because you know, it makes things so slow, so difficult, and often we're held hostage. You just need one veto. But I remind everyone that the consensus system is a design feature and not a bug of ASEAN. So when people come up to me and say, well, you know, in ASEAN, you don't have a single currency, you don't have a, a single bureaucracy, and you take so long to decide, I say, well, that's precisely the point. We are designed that way because we recognize our diversity. Nevertheless, after 50 years, if you look at what has happened in Southeast Asia, there has been peace, there has been prosperity, there has been development, there has been connectivity, and as I said earlier, if you look at the numbers, we are poised for growth. We, in the next 20 years, we will be number four in the world after China, US, EU. And a big difference is demographics is in our favor compared to Northeast Asia, compared even to the EU. So my point is the EU and ASEAN are the two most successful regional organizations but have very different starting bases and I think we're making the best of our position. But that's also why we are trying to settle to get the EU-Singapore FTA ratified and once that is done, to say, well, the next step is an EU-ASEAN FTA. Because in a way, given the state of the world now, even the EU recognizes that those of us who believe in economic integration, in interdependence and free trade, better put our money where our mouth is, sign those agreements, make those arrangements, and make a collective bet on the future. So that's where we ended last week, and I think we're generally on the right track. Can we have step? Is there another one person over there? Can I take that question first on the left? Okay. Yes, I please go ahead. First. Okay, uh, like Kim Fart from uh, Sense Times is a oh. AI startup. Yes, I visited and, uh, you. I know Sense Times. Yeah, and deep learning. Yes. I want to ask Minister, although I know that you are from Foreign Ministry, I felt that the, the devil is in the implementation and execution. 
Yes. So you mentioned about AI robotics. So in terms of educating our future generation, yes. I want to hear your view on how can we do better in getting our next generation of leaders, students uh, ready for this new wave that yeah. is unstoppable. Uh, secondly, how can government, big ministry, share the talents with the private sector? Because I see that a lot of top talent are retained in the government. We have a very good, successful system to sieve out the elite from young. But we reach a stage where the industry also need government to share some of the talent as early as possible. For example, I think the EDB MD, Kai Fong, I like his background. He was released to the Shell uh, uh, for two years to understudy, understanding the private sector issue. Luckily, he's able to come back to the government. He didn't stay back into the Shell. But I, I see I that, that was a we have to, have to break the, the model <laughs> to look at talent as a small nation. How, how can we better use deep yes. data analytics to identify talent from young and, and groom them and develop them as a nation? Well, thank you for that question. And Pr Prime Minister Lee and I visited Sandstein, so we know what you all are up to. <laughs> Your question fundamentally is that of talent. Yeah. And today, if I ask you, how many people have fully mastered the mathematics, the linear algebra, the matrix manipulation. Needed to program systems like Siri or Cortana or SenseTime or Alexa. You know, I suspect in the whole world, maybe only about 10,000 people can do it. It's a very small number for something of such profound significance. And yet the whole world, you're talking in terms of thousands, you're not talking in terms of millions. The challenge, therefore, is one of scale. How do we make sure that we've got 7 billion people in the world? How can we make sure it is at least 10 or 100 million and not just 10,000 people worldwide who have the necessary skills to program and master these systems? And here, it's why the answer comes back to education, to training and retraining and skills future. It sounds very boring, it sounds very trite, but that is the only way. And yes, of course, there's this question of the flow of talent between private and public sector. And you know, we're lucky that I guess we bonded Kai Fong and Shell was not allowed to poach him. I think Zhe Hong was at that time chairman of Shell, that may have helped. But the larger question is this, how do we get thousands of people mastering these technologies? And I think it's a combination of both the public sector and private sector needs to do its bit. From the public sector point of view, we must invest in education. And we must invest so that, as Minister Heng says, every school is a good school. Every child has access to the latest tools, the latest technologies, and our teachers must be able to teach that. That's one level. 
Number two, it is government's duty to invest in infrastructure. That's why we have one of the best fiber networks in the world. And if Sokkum complains about it, I will invest some more and make it even better because we must be number one. Infrastructure, education. Then the third thing is having trained people and having got infrastructure, we must be able to attract companies like yours to do some work here. Not a sales office, but an engineering development work in Singapore. And we have to attract you not by offering you know, taxes and land, because after all, in the new economy, it is about data and speed and connectivity. It is not about land and taxes. Right. We need to create systems that protect intellectual property so that companies will be prepared to do real development work down here. Another element, I'm still talking about governments, is governments have to invest in R&D. That's why we have the National Research Foundation. That's why we support our universities, especially in pursuing basic and applied research. Beyond that, what Singapore needs is smart money. You know, we're not short of capital in Singapore, but smart money that understands the technology, that is able to take a startup or a founder, connect him into a larger network, into a larger ecosystem, and give his or her ideas a chance to fly. And then beyond a venture capital and startup vibrancy, we need to make sure the international rules for instance, rules on the flow of data, on the security of data, work so that companies can do development work here and access global markets out from Singapore. So you see there's a multiple layers of things that we need to do. My sense of it is that we have done a significant amount. We are within range, but we will never be a superpower. So we have to keep trying to be as close as possible to the cutting edge. And then we will become part of the global supply chains, the global value chains for data and artificial intelligence, just as we did in the old days for silk, and then for machines, and then for electronics, and then for containers. We need to repeat this whole cycle again in this new, in this new arena. For those of you who don't know, SenseTime basically does very sophisticated facial recognition. And if you are in any major junction in China, chances are there's a SenseTime camera that has recognized you and given the relevant information to the relevant people. I better not say more before I cause a problem. <laughs> that was uh, thank you, Minister. A lady in the, in the middle row, yes. Uh, good afternoon, Minister, and good, af uh, good afternoon, Mr. Devon. Um, there's a lot of things happening these days. Uh, we're seeing the re-emergence of the Quad comprising Australia, Japan, India, and the United States. And we're seeing the trade spat between United States and China. And last year, we noted with great interest the inaugural attendance of President Vladimir Putin at EAS. My question is, do you think this is time for ASEAN to reach out and engage new superpowers like Russia so as to counterbalance the old boys? And if so, what are some of the concrete and actionable initiatives that we're taking for such, such engagement with non-traditional partners? Thank you. Well, the simple answer to your question is we do engage all significant 
stakeholders and partners. Russia, for instance, is a member of the EAS. President Putin did make a state visit to Singapore and attend the EAS. Right now, we're trying to negotiate a free trade agreement with the Eurasian, uh, it says EA, Eurasian Economic uh, Association, which is basically Russia and the states on its uh, western border. So we are trying to engage. But as I said earlier, it's not just a matter of trying to engage, but to engage in a principled, neutral, disciplined way so that Singapore is a place, if you needed to assemble a team consisting of Russians, Chinese, Kazakhs, Indians, you could do it more easily in Singapore than you could even in Silicon Valley or Moscow or Beijing. That is the niche that we're trying to play. That's what I mean by convening power and by being a trusted and open city in the digital sense. And really, it comes to openness at a human level. And I think we have done reasonably well so far. And again, the point I'm trying to make is that's why we must maintain this reputation for neutrality, openness, and reliability. We have only five minutes left. Let me figure out how many questions. There's one over there. There's one here in the middle. Um, is there one over there on my right? Let's take them all. <laughs> Um, okay, why don't we start with the gentleman on my left. Hi, I'm Emil from IMDA. Um, when it comes to cybersecurity, it's oftentimes discussed in the frame of crisis management. Um, as Singapore strives to be a champion in smart nations, smart cities, smart technology, um, what's your view in advancing the Singapore cybersecurity effort from surviving to thriving? Thank okay. you. Um, the gentleman in the middle, is yours also on digital cyber? No. Okay, you can. Why don't you answer this first? Yeah. The most successful country that has monetized its cyber security capability is Israel. And it has done so in just recent five, six, seven years. So the question must be, why Israel? Well, obviously Israel has a need for cybersecurity. It is both a victim as well as uses it for its own state purposes. But the reason why they have succeeded is twofold. Number one, they've been able to recruit top minds. And this doesn't mean graduates, but top minds very early, probably in their teenage years, specially nurtured, deployed, gave them a chance to do operational stuff. And then they've released those top minds, those top brains into the private sector where they've taken their expertise, created commercial products and services, and in fact now created a global market for their services. So again, the answer there is it comes back to human beings. Can we raise a sufficient critical mass of people with the interest, the passion, the ability, the nurturing, and the opportunity, and then release them into the private sector 
and hopefully they will do well and become another arm of the Singapore economy. One last question. My name is Terence, GIC. Companies have increasingly gotten more powerful over the years. Some have GDPs larger than small countries, as yes. you've said, and many are now owners of technology that we would literally not be able to live without. And in, in addition, many of these commercial entities are also being used, for example, the SWIFT network, to prosecute foreign policy aims. So how does Singapore, how will Singapore deal with this expanding grey area? Again, another very salient question. If you think about digital technology, a lot of it in the last 50 years actually developed within laboratories that were funded by America and in particular the defense ministries in America. So you had this confluence of money, talent and academia getting together. And then in turn that generated both an incidental public good because I don't think they started off by saying we want to create the internet for all the purposes that it is put to now. But it also created a whole new market and America had a whole second wind of economic development because it led in these technologies. So what happened in America is that the value capture, the profit part of it, really went to the private sector. And because they led and opened up that same technology worldwide, they then had access to a global market. And that's why the tech giants of today are certainly bigger than GDPs of many small states. And as you've quite rightly said, even more important than just revenue is the technology that they have captured within their business ecosystem. The question now then is what is the role of the state and in particular states beyond the digital superpowers? And as I said in my earlier answer, the first is to uplift the capability and skills of our people right? so that even if, they don't in, even if we didn't invent it, we must be early adopters and we must be early applicators, be able to apply these new technologies. Even better still, if we can get our share or more than our fair share of unicorns that in turn will capture value even better. All that needs to be done. But there's another area where I think states and in particular international consensus will be needed. And that is in the field of standards setting. And my own personal preference is to move towards open standards, open source, open data, so that there'll be a fairer, open and level playing field with opportunities for everyone. And to actively lean against companies 
always trying to build wall gardens and always trying to create barriers so that newcomers cannot enter that field. So there will always be tension between the big companies and the regulators. But because the big companies now are such large multinational companies, you actually need coordination amongst regulators at an international level. And that's why I, I spent part of my speech talking about the need for global standards and that cyberspace is another arena of the global commons, just like climate change, just like pandemics. And we need effective global cooperation, collaboration and standard setting. And we need to do so in order to open up these technologies, in order to democratize it so that a new middle class can rise and it is only then that you get a new golden age. So that's my approach to it, but we are still in very, very early days. Uh, in the initial phase, the companies will object, reject, do their best to resist. And you see that happening now. Right? In the next phase, some countries will feel, oh, I have an advantage, I will do it, but I do not want my neighbours and the other international uh, countries to be able to compete with me. It'll take much longer for enlightened long-term self-interest to kick in and to understand that this is a public good and we need some modicum of regulation in order to level the playing field so that there'll be fair competition and the value will be harvested and shared in an equitable way. This will take time to evolve. It says here, please conclude, time's up, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, may I just ask your indulgence and ask one last question yes. so as to end on the little red dot. Um, many years ago, on the eve of the Second World War, the Oxford Union passed a resolution saying that they will not, under any circumstances, fight for king and country. And that sent an obvious signal to the Axis powers and they made their calculations as a result. The strongest thing that every foreign minister since the first of Singapore has had going for him is that no one really doubts that if there is a crisis, the foreign minister and his government will be able to galvanize yeah. the entire population of Singapore behind our national interests. And we have seen this displayed over the past year or so on more than two occasions, in fact, two or three occasions, you've had the opposition stand up in parliament, led by Mr. Lothia Kiang himself, yes. to make it clear that on matters of national interest, politics stops at the water's edge and there is no daylight between yes. the opposition and the government. How certain are you that this will obtain in the years to come? And what dangers, if any, do you see yeah. in the maintenance of a domestic consensus yeah. on our national interests? No, that's a fundamental question. And my starting point always is that foreign policy begins at home. Mm -hmm. If Singapore was not successful, mm -hmm. if Singapore was not united, mm -hmm. there is no foreign policy mm -hmm. worth pursuing. But because 
we are successful and united. We are in the happy position where I can tell my colleagues, Singapore will never be intimidated or bought. And that's a precious good, you know, to be able to say that we will not be intimidated or bought. Then the next point is, okay, if you can get to that stage, how do you maintain that, which is your, your question. So let me let you in on, it's not really a state secret, for any significant foreign policy issue. Not only do we spend enormous amount of time within cabinet, particularly with the Prime Minister and the DPMs and the other ministries, analyzing, discussing, arguing, working through all the options, all the pluses and minuses. We do a lot of that. But I also brief the opposition and the NMPs. And I do so because, as you said, beyond our shores, this is Singapore. And I'm glad to tell you, at least based on my experience so far, there has been no gap. No party politics has supervened or interfered with our pursuit of foreign policy. This is a blessing. Your next question is, can you maintain that? And the answer is, I'm going to do my darnest to make sure we maintain this bipartisan consensus. And it is important we do that because Singapore is just too small. We cannot afford the, you know, the kind of raucous toing and froing which often happens in many other countries. So better to take someone into confidence, argue it out privately if need be, than to display disunity in Parliament. And you're absolutely right, uh, certainly with the current opposition, they have played their part and we have taken them into confidence. So it makes my job so much easier. And uh, my final point is this. You know, diplomats, by definition, are people who tend to be good at language, good communicators, good analysts. And all that is essential. But ultimately, if you can't carry the population, if you can't convince people that you're doing the right thing and that even when the waters get choppy and sacrifices need to be made, if you're unable to convince people of that, we can't pursue our foreign policy. So for 53 years, I, you know, I, I always think it, it, it's an incredible blessing that we've been able to do five things, right? First, be successful and united. Two, make sure we cannot be bought or intimidated. Three, to be friends and be able to do business with everyone. Four, to strictly and in the disciplined way uphold international law. And fifth, to always say the same thing to all the different parties. 
I don't have the luxury of whispering sweet nothings and different things mm. to different stakeholders and different partners who I'm negotiating with. So it is, you know, I, I always count it a, a, a blessing to be able to operate in such a system. So my final point is this, we are living in very uncertain times. I have offered the hypothesis that the world order is fractured because domestically there is fractious politics in many other places and that this political heaving and throwing is occurring because we are in living in the onset of another technological digital revolution. And the answers do not lie in foreign policy first. You better get the cause, the chain of causality right. Fix your domestic conditions first. Create, as Mr. Lee Kuan Yew always reminded us, a fair and just society. Give everyone hope for a better future and equip every Singaporean with the skills needed so that they know they have a fair chance of a better future. Then we can have good politics and as I said, the example I've given you, at least for now, in foreign policy, we've got good politics. Mm -hmm. And then, once you've settled that, then you can work out how do we navigate this dangerous new world mm -hmm. that is unfolding. But my point is, I hope I haven't made you all too pessimistic. I hope I've given you all a sense that if you take a step back and analyze the larger things, forces, and understand that we've seen all this before and we made the right choices and positioned ourselves correctly. If we do that again, then a golden age awaits us. So I remain a realistic optimist. Thank you all very much for your attention over a long day. Thank you.